Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, yeah. Guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year: best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who? Are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everyone. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, presented by Netflix. <laughs> the big red streaming giant, as it were. Yes, yes. Uh, we're going to talk a little about Triple Frontier and then get into probably a, a broader Netflix conversation because uh, everyone's talking about Netflix. It's kind of a big deal. And there's uh, lots of things to discuss. Triple Frontier. Tell me when you first heard about it and sort of what you thought and how excited you were and all that good jazz. Well, as with most people, I, it, it sort of hit my radar when um, we saw that incredible back tattoo on uh, Ben Affleck, right? When he was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which still hasn't been confirmed or disconfirmed as real or not, right? Has he ever? It seems like he's been super cagey about whether it was just for the movie. I mean, he never takes his shirt off in the movie, right? We never actually get to see the infamous back tattoo in the film. Yeah, it must be a deleted scene or something. I can't really <laughs> think of a part of this movie where he would have needed to take off his shirt. Considering how much machismo there is in this film, it is staggering the, that nobody ever actually takes it. I guess Garrett Hedlund is... Uh, Shirtless at one point because he's the MMA fighter, right? I don't. I think he's wearing a shirt. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's yeah. There's no there's no shirtlessness. There's no sex at all. Very chaste. This movie is kind of defined by dad bods and by like a hard, you know, heavy uh, REI wardrobe, right? Like lots of backpacks and windbreakers. But I, I was dancing around your question. You asked uh, when I first heard about this. This movie has been in various stages of development for about a decade now. It was supposed to be Tom Hanks and Johnny Depp. <laughs> yes, How about that allegedly. shit? Directed by Catherine Bigelow. Yes. That's a movie I would have... I think I would have rather seen that movie eight years ago, but this is interesting in its own right. I've been talking with my dad a lot recently about Catherine Bigelow. We're both fascinated by her career. He's the world's biggest um, Zero Dark Thirty fan. He he brings that movie up almost every single time we have a conversation about movies. He's he's absolutely head over heels for it. I, I'm impressed with her as well, and I'm impressed with that movie, and I like Hurt Locker as much as the next guy. I even think that there was some interesting things going on in Detroit, but I'm a big fan of Catherine Bigelow's lowbrow stuff. I yeah. like The Pulp. I like mm -hmm. uh, Near Dark, and I like Point Break, and I like Strange Days, and I would love for Catherine Bigelow to go back to some of this pulpy, lowbrow genre stuff, and this particular film I think would have been perfect for her, and I really think that that's the, that's the move for her at this point in her career, is to kind of go back to the well a little bit. She's been getting real highfalutin with all this Mark Bowl stuff she's been doing, and it kind of blew up in her face with Detroit, and I think it's yeah. time to throttle back a little bit and get back to basics, and this would have been the perfect project for her. I wish she would have taken it all the way, because Mark Bowl is her guy. And this is not nearly as kind of like, not nearly as prestige as Detroit and yeah. The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. And as big of Shandor heads as we are. Certainly. Uh, and I will get into this in more detail. But Shandorks, uh, the, please. Shandorks, yes, sorry. <laughs> Uh, one thing this movie's missing, I think, is someone with Bigelow's technical and action acumen. Sure. Because Shandor does at times seem a little, I don't know, unsure of himself and a little out of his depth when it comes to the more action-oriented 
set piece type things in this movie. And none of those, in my opinion, ever really hit here, which is which is interesting given how sort of adept he has been in his career, sort of genre hopping. Yeah. Um, yeah. So J.C. Shandor comes on. Uh, Catherine Bigelow stays on as executive producer. Story by Mark Bull and Shandor and Bull, I guess, collaborate a little on the script. Yeah, a lot, lot of weird moving parts here. Affleck bowed out, came back in, bowed out, came back in. At one point, uh, Will Smith, I think, was attached. Uh, Channing Tatum, Tom Hardy, Mahershala Ali. I mean, there's a real... Mark Wahlberg. Door, exactly, yeah. which makes sense. None of the research that I did specifies which roles any of these actors were uh, attached to, but one has to imagine that Affleck, and, and we, we're going to get into the weeds of the uh, meta-commentary on Affleck's career and personality <laughs> attached sure. to this particular character. But it is strange that he was attached and then and then dropped out and then came back on board. He is top billed still, right? I mean, Oscar Isaac is the de facto leader of this group, and I guess he's the quote-unquote star of this film in as much as it's you know more of an ensemble piece, but Affleck is certainly top build, right? I mean, he is the for better or for worse the biggest name in this film, right? Uh, yeah, he definitely is. I mean, who knows if in 10, 15 years if Oscar Isaac will will be on his level? I I, I doubt it. Hollywood keeps trying to make Charlie Hunnam and Garrett Hedlund happen, <laughs> yes, and it's so do. funny that they're in the same movie. <laughs> I know. Because for a lot of people, I think they are a little bit interchangeable. I do appreciate the fact they make them brothers. I'm not the first person to bring this up, but I do want to add my voice to the chorus. All these guys have these super cool uh, special forces nicknames, mm-hmm. but Garrett Hedlund doesn't get one. Yeah. Uh, Oscar Isaac is Pope, right? Uh, yeah. Channing Tatum is Iron Man. There's no um, Channing Tatum. You mean Charlie? Hunt? I'm sorry. Whoa. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of interchangeable, uh, uh, or Iron Blood, or something, or Iron Fist, something like that. Uh, Iron Head. Sorry. Affleck um, is what red panda or something. Affleck is red fly. I also red appreciate fly. the fact that they don't explain them at all. Like there's no, no. backstory. There's and then Pedro Pascal is catfish. That's my favorite one. And then Ga- Garrett Hedlund is just Ben Miller. So in addition to the fact <laughs> he doesn't get a cool nickname, he also has the most boring name you could possibly come up with. This this movie has one of the like weirdest approaches to exposition. Maybe weird's the wrong word. Bad. Maybe bad's a better word. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it. Because, you know, we start with this this first opening, sort of cold open, where it's Oscar Isaac is uh, on a mission. It's just setting up the, the, the landscape. They're taking down a, a drug cartel, but they never get to the top, so on and so forth. And it's, it's a fun enough action sequence. But then we get into the, you know, getting the band together sequence, right? And you can tell that that's what's happening because Fleetwood Mac's the chain. <laughs> This this movie has some real clunky needle drops, I will say that. Lots and lots of Metallica, and then a very blunt use of Fleetwood Mac, I must say. Well, then in Credence, too, right? Oh, God, yeah. When they go go back to the jungle, they drop the Credence. What is this, the post? Yeah, Jesus. (laughs) But this is, I think, like the laziest and weirdest getting the band together sequence ever, right? Yeah. You spend like a... A bit of time getting it's Oscar Isaac rounding up his his old old troops. He he gets Charlie Hunnam and Charlie Hunnam's like yeah sure old but if only if Affleck goes right and then we spend a lot of time with Affleck and I and I assume this is because he's top build and he's been Affleck. Um, so just considering what is eventually going to happen to Affleck, you kind of need to build all that stuff into it, right? Like you need time with his family. One would presume since he's top build and because he's the biggest name in this thing that he will sort of like emerge as the star or the leader. But then spoilers takes one right to the forehead at about the three quarter mark of this film, which yeah. is great. And we'll we'll get to it when we get to that part of the movie. But uh, but yeah, I mean they really lean into how out of shape he is, the fact that he's persona non grata with his ex wife. That he and his daughter aren't really on speaking terms. You know that he can't sell a condo to save his life. I know they allude to like something happening to him in terms of like. I mean, he said he's been shot a few times. There's some stuff early on in that like he got a he got a raw deal by someone, right? Or, or oh. maybe they're just referring to in general they all got raw deals from the from the government from the government that chewed him up and spit him out. Okay. Yeah, but man, I want to I want to showcase this sequence because. I, I need this explained to me. I tried to figure this out. There's a sequence of events that happens in this getting the band back together, all right? Yep. Ben Affleck is showing a condo. Mm-hmm. Oscar Isaac is outside, and he, and he meets him, right? Yep. They immediately get in Affleck's truck, and they drive to his house. Yes. They drink beers in the car <laughs> yes. while they go and pick up his daughter to take her to school. Exactly. Right? Okay, so they drink beers in the car. They drop the they drop uh, Oscar Isaac off right at the MMA fight. Uh, are we in Florida? Are we in LA? Where I, I presumed it was Florida, just because it seems like that would be the closest 
you know, to South America as the crow flies. And there's lots of palm trees and stuff, but they never really specify where we are, right? And all these guys just live in the same city? I guess they live in the same city, but they haven't seen each other for a while. Okay, exactly. whatever. Yeah. Okay, so uh, drop Oscar Isaac off at the MMA fight. Then Ben Affleck drops the daughter off at school. Well, before that, he's, he says to Oscar Isaac, I'll see you in 20 minutes. Okay. Drops the daughter off at school. Oscar Isaac meets the guys in the MMA, so he gets the rest of the band back together. All like three other guys within like you spend five minutes getting them together after spending like twenty minutes with Affleck, right? And this is one of those hopping three o'clock in the afternoon MMA fights, obviously. Well, here's what I'm getting to: (laughs) drop the daughter off at school, Uh right? uh Okay. Ten minutes later, Affleck meets them holding beers at the MMA fight. What time of day is this? Yeah. This has to be at 10 a.m., right? Yes. This is a 10 a.m. weekday MMA fight where everyone's drinking beers? Yeah, you're getting to, I think, what's the sort of more global issue <laughs> with this movie in that it feels, considering the fact that it took almost a decade to bring it to the screen, it doesn't feel like there is much of an effort to make it particularly smooth or elegant or coherent, all things considered. Yeah. I mean, this thing really needed some more time in the oven. And, uh, I mean, I guess there's no use dancing around it. I think I think we should just go through the entire plot for sure. But uh, this movie's not great. And no. we can get into the implications of it being released by Netflix as opposed to getting a wide theatrical release, considering that it has a bunch of movie stars in it. And it's directed by a pretty well-known up-and-coming director. Uh, but this movie's not very good. And it seems like most people are echoing that sentiment. That being said, it is weirdly watchable. And there is some Mm -hmm. fascinating things about it. And there is stuff in it that works pretty darn well. And it's an interesting sort of like cultural artifact. And I understand why so many people have been talking about it the last couple of weeks. I mean, obviously, Netflix is very much at the forefront of everyone's mind who writes and talks and podcasts about these kinds of things. But this is a weird one. And this is might be a little bit of a turning point here. And that's why I'm glad we're sort of digging into this, considering that we haven't really done a, you know, a quote-unquote present tense episode in a while. Like I said, this movie is not good. It's, it's, it's very clunky, yeah. weirdly paced. Um, the internal logic isn't really there. Um, the, the backgrounds of the characters are, on for the most part, given pretty short shrift. I mean, Pedro Pascal has a cocaine habit. Uh, Garrett Hedlund does MMA. That's about it. All we that's it, right? He's kind of dumb, I guess. He's the young one. That I mean, that that's that's kind of interesting. Like I had forgotten Garrett Hedlund is actually pretty darn young. So he's the youngster of the group. Maybe that's why he doesn't have a cool nickname yet. But uh, yeah, and then Charlie Hunnam is the kind of PTSD. He, he's like out there doing. Um, he's like doing public speaking engagements for uh, Marines, yeah. right? And his thing is he keeps track of everything. He's the numbers guy or whatever, right? I guess. Um, sure. And then Affleck is the man with the plan. And his plans are uniformly terrible, generally. <laughs> well, I think this movie has some interesting parallels to, and again, I'm not certainly not the first person to bring this up, parallels to uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like that's what Bull and or Chandor was really getting at with this thing. Mm-hmm. And there are even moments when they're literally dragging mules over mountains and it's it just like there's just a direct sort of aesthetic connection to um the treasure of the sierra madre and affleck i guess would be the de facto uh, humphrey bogart in this regard and spoilers for the treasure of the sierra madre humphrey bogart dies in that <laughs> film and, and affleck dies here so they get to south america because now you got the band back together and we're going off on this mission and it's going to be a quote-unquote recce right which i presume yeah. means reconnaissance I, so when did we stop calling it recon why are we calling it recce is that just that much the same amount of syllables i don't know <laughs> exactly <laughs> it just seems like a cute screenwriter thing that that bull probably was pretty pleased with himself about and that happens very quickly and they go from recce to full-on mission where we're, where we're going to be performing murder pretty yeah. damn quickly right because this movie is not really concerned with that this movie really wants to get to the uh, men against the elements Part, yeah, right? it wants it, to get to the Andes for sure. Exactly, it much more wants to be a survival story as opposed to a you know a drug cartel film. Yeah, they get there and then Affleck pretty quickly gets the whiff of money and he gets to give this great speech in the um, in the container right in the shipping yeah. container. Yeah, it's a it, that's one of the highlights of the movie is is the pre heist speech and Affleck's very good in this and some of the best dialogue in the film. But yeah, pretty quickly it all turns to shit because. All the conflict in this movie, all, all, all the all the stumbling blocks that this crew hits, the screenplay has to do these crazy acrobatics to get <laughs> them to be so stupid to get into bad situations because they really could have gotten away 
quickly and scot-free and, and, and been successful and made millions upon millions of dollars if they weren't so dumb and greedy and all these things. And maybe that's what they're going for is this sort of uh, morality play against uh, you know the, the dangers of, of greed, right? Yeah, well, the movie has interesting things or at least is tangentially uh, you know interesting adjacent uh, <laughs> in terms of its uh, commentary about the military, about America, about machismo and toxic masculinity or whatever, and about greed and maybe about Ben Affleck's kind of career trajectory, right? Like, I think this movie will be an interesting, will make for an interesting double feature with Gone Girl someday. Sure. Which I think is also kind of a meta-commentary about Affleck's career, whether he knew that or not when he signed on. <laughs> well, I mean, do, do you think anything could be a meta-commentary on Affleck's career, given how many <laughs> different <laughs> different turns it has taken, right? Well, just just look at it. I was again. I was talking to my dad about this the other day because he's also deeply invested in Affleck and fascinated by Affleck. And we were just talking about the fact that like this guy comes out of the shoot with his best friend, and they win an Oscar, and he gets to play kind of second fiddle to Damon, and he's really great. It's it's one of his best performances in Goodwill Hunting. And then instead of sort of maybe writing something else or developing as an actor, you know, kind of like seeking out important directors the way that Damon did. He just goes straight into huge movie star mode, right? Yeah. And it was kind of his the downfall of the first chapter of his career. Mm-hmm. And he became a joke. He became a punchline. And so then he throttled back and he reassessed. And then he pivoted to becoming a prestige director. Yeah. And to everyone's surprise, he was really, really good at it. And he made three great movies right out of the shoot. And one of them won Best Picture. So it was like... Oh, great. And then he does Gone Girl, and it's probably the greatest performance of his career, working with this fantastic director. All right, here we go. Affleck, he's reinvented. It, it's time for the next chapter, and he's clearly learned from his mistakes, and he's you know he's married to Jennifer Garner. They seem to have a good thing going. They have kids. Here we go. Affleck has grown up. What does he do next? Becomes Batman. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's a fucking punchline again. It's like, at the time, I just slapped myself in the forehead. I was like, God damn, this guy can't get out of his own fucking way. Like, yeah. He's on the verge of a really important career change and then he just he basically made the worst possible decision he could have and then he directed a really bad movie and, yeah. and now he's kind of a joke again do you think he's just enamored by the idea of being a movie star he just wants to be top of the marquee big budget just big things happening because doing the batman thing i guess i'm convinced that the only reason he signed up for to do batman was so he could direct a batman movie yeah i remember you mentioning that at the time and i was always a little bit skeptical about that and that obviously hasn't panned out yeah um but to answer your question he, he's just drawn like a fucking moth to the stardom of it all right yeah and that's why i think there's interesting parallels with this film in terms of how this guy just immediately gives into his greed the minute he starts pulling uh money out of the walls of this stash house he just immediately like his his eyes turn into uh, slot machines right yeah I just think that's kind of interesting that like his worst impulses come out as soon as he starts to see the money in this house. And because he, he, you know, he gets so greedy that he basically throws off the plan. And as a result, you know, everything goes to shit and he ends up dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that that's a lot like Affleck's career trajectory in terms of how he just can't help himself from wanting to just chase that stardom as opposed to developing as an artist, developing as an actor, developing as a director, bettering himself, if you will. <laughs> So basically, he's the man with the plan. He has built out this whole schedule. Garrett Hedlund at one point says, "Hey, man, in our entire the entire time we've known each other, every time we've worked together, you have never missed a heart out. You've never missed a heart out, <laughs> right?" He's like, "A built-in fifteen minutes, exactly." <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't help but think about like being in college, and there was always those, you know, there was always the friend who would just always be like running a little bit late, or who you yeah. just couldn't rely on, and. They would be the ones who would make you late to get to the movie. So you'd end up having to like build in a buffer. Yeah. So if the movie started at 3.30, you told him it started at 3.15. So in this regard, he tells him he's built in 15 minutes. So then, of course, they're late. And then the cartel guys come back. Bullets start flying. And it's the beginning of the end, really, even though we're only halfway through the movie. Yeah, it's weird that all the other guys in this crew are these, you know, badass dude supposedly have such deference to Affleck all the time right and and it's like you know I guess it touches on whatever past they have but it's never explained or or really uh, you know blatantly discussed so he's just acting insane and everyone's like okay I guess this is what we're doing now and then they like don't even bat an eye when it's like okay I guess we're gonna have to mow through these new security guards that have shown up and you, you never really felt the tension ratchet up in any of those moments 
either. And I don't know if that's a Shandor's fault or it's the script's fault, but it, it all kind of comes about in sort of a nonchalance that, uh, I don't know, is not really good for what's supposed to be a action thriller heist movie and it's a dreadfully boring heist sequence too yeah you know like all the stuff in the house i mean i guess it's sort of cool when they start whipping machetes into the um into the walls and pulling money out it's just that's an interesting visual but all the stuff where they're skulking around the house and they're sniping guys and they're getting out in the van i mean i found all that stuff to be pretty darn boring yeah and maybe it is just chandor sort of you know having some uh, growing pains when it comes to learning how to be an action filmmaker yeah, but like the heist in in I mean, there's nothing interesting about the heist, right? Yeah, that, that's that's the thing. Like that heists have to be a little complex, and you have to sort of nudge the audience one way and go another way, and sort of keep the audience in the dark about some parts of the plan, but also give them you know some some breadcrumbs here and there. So you know, I, I don't I don't know how they eight years of development or whatever it took to get this movie made that no one's like, hey, why don't we make this heist a little more a little more interesting? I think it's because it's so perfunctory. It's it's very clear what Chandor and Bull are interested in getting to, which is these guys having to drag this money over the Andes. I mean, that's clearly the movie that they want to make and they can't get to it quick enough. Yeah. Uh, So the stuff that I find to be the most interesting and the most effective is when they get in the helicopter. And so Pedro Pascal is the helicopter pilot and he's weighed all the money and he's decided that uh, they're going to be overweight. Again, this is another example of them being unbelievably stupid to get them into, like, you know get some conflict going here he keeps telling him we're gonna be overweight we're not gonna make it it's like oh fuck it let's try it he's like no it's not gonna work he's like okay i guess i'll try it yeah he backs down really quickly which again i guess sort of speaks to what you're talking about in terms of they just defer to affleck every single time to their to the eventual detriment of this entire mission yeah pedro pascal just he he wilts very quickly even though he's done the math and it's just not gonna work they get in the helicopter and of course they're overweight we all know exactly where this is going but it is a pretty thrilling sequence yeah, when the when the helicopter just starts to, you know, when the gearbox just uh, malfunctions and it's it's pretty exciting. I mean, the special effects aren't great, no. and again, this kind of speaks to the fact that this is a middle of the road, mid budget Netflix film. I know. I, again, like I always say, I don't want to talk shit about these mid budget movies because we've been lamenting their 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 lack of existence for the last I don't know ten fifteen years. But uh, yeah, you can you can see it in some of these sequences for sure. Yeah, and this is ultimately what you know, what we need to get to in this conversation is, is the sort of mediocrity of this film or something like Bird Box, which I actually didn't see, but it's been resoundingly declared to be mediocre. Is this the norm? Is this the Netflix brand and is Roma an outlier? Are we looking forward to more Romas coming along? And, you know, maybe The Irishman is going to be a masterpiece or is the Netflix feature model basically a film that is not quote unquote good enough to make it to movie theaters? Because ultimately that that's kind of what I got from the whole Bird Box thing was a lot of people may or may not have watched it. But this movie would not have worked in movie theaters because it's just not good enough. Yeah. And this movie is technically in movie theaters. It's playing in at least one theater in Seattle right now. And I, at one point, I was contemplating going to see it in a theater, A, to support that kind of exhibition model, and B, uh, it actually came out in theaters a week before it hit Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Right? I, I thought so. about that, too. Yeah, there, there are a lot of interesting pieces here. One is that Netflix is... Netflix goes by the algorithm, right? And they, they, they make a lot of creative decisions and budgeting decisions and, you know, green lighting decisions based on what their algorithm tells them, right? And so you wonder how much of a movie like this is based on, okay, this is the kind of movie, and the bird box especially, kind of movie that people, you know, may not go out to the theaters for, but if it's sitting there right in front of them while they're on the couch, they're going to say, yeah, of course, I'll give this a go. I think by all counts, how Bird Box became so successful, according to Netflix. Again, we don't, Netflix has their own proprietary numbers and they tell us what they want to tell us and who knows how fucking true those things are. They create the narrative. Again, like that is, that has to be their niche, right? Netflix, right? If, If Netflix made a movie that they thought would make a billion dollars at the box office, they just release it in the box office and take the money, right? I don't think Netflix factors that in. I, like, whether or not The Irishman can make more money at the box office than it can with people uh, getting Netflix subscriptions to stream it, I think Netflix really dogmatically wants to move away from this theatrical distribution model. I don't think they even want to consider what they can make in the theater. I think they do it to appease the Alfonso Corans of the world 
or the Coen brothers of the world, and they will do it to appease uh, Scorsese. And they're, you know, and obviously they they want to try and win awards with it. If given all things being equal, if these filmmakers didn't insist on it, I don't think Netflix would do anything in the theater. Like, isn't that the thing? I mean, the adage is Amazon wants to play the game. Netflix wants to change the game. Right. And as far as Netflix is concerned, if every movie theater in the world burst into flames tomorrow, it's all the better for them. They want everybody sitting on their couch pressing, you know, pressing play on Bird Box. Well, I mean, step back a second, right? Netflix is is in the business of making money, right? That's all. That's their humongous international company, and they want revenue, right? And so mm-hmm. all they care about is is keeping people subscribed and getting new subscribers, right? Mm-hmm. But also making money. So if they had a movie that was good enough if they had a captain marvel right if if they had a property that they could send out there and make a billion dollars internationally i can't see any reason why they wouldn't do that it might show up on netflix a month later six weeks later or whatever releasing triple frontier on netflix is not making them any new money it's just you don't think people you don't think new people subscribe to netflix who weren't already subscribers because uh, they were excited about triple frontier you don't think anybody you don't think they got any new customers? Uh, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they did, but I'm guaranteed it was a negligible amount. Negligible, right? Okay, all right, all right. Uh, and so, if if they could do that, um, I, I just assume that they would. I mean, if you're if you're a stakeholder Netflix and you thought, hey, why are we leaving 500 million dollars on the table? You know, that that's a bad business decision. But again, I you're probably right in that like dogmatically they have to stick to this plan because it's it's not about each individual film it's about the the combination of all these things that they're putting on that are keeping people subscribed right it's the algorithm it's about the movement yes know? yeah yeah but this goes back to the the quality of the films like they don't have as high a bar to jump over as film production companies do they're strictly going to the theater right okay. their movies don't have to be as good you know, there is a built-in sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's just super convenient, obviously, for people to stay home as opposed to go to the theater. And to get to the theater, you need a certain level of quality. For Netflix, I guarantee far fewer people looked up the Rotten Tomatoes score for Triple Frontier than they did for, say, Captain Marvel or something, right? I think it's in the mid-60s, 66, 67, something like that. And that sounds just about right. Yeah. Let, let's just dance through this to the end real quick, just so we can give this movie its due. Sure, sure. And then we can get on to the larger conversation. So, so the helicopter goes down. Obviously, they end up in this in this village where there's it, it, it's like a coke processing village or something, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, immediately, just the bullets start flying, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're just like, we're just you know, murdering innocent people. There's a tense Vill- scene, villagers. and one guy brandishes like a, a rusty shiv, and Affleck <laughs> just <laughs> mows him down. Mows him down. Yeah. Yeah, so Affleck starts melting down almost immediately, and you, it's clear that he's just he's just off the deep end. And yeah, he's turning into Dobbs from um, from the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm-hmm. And so the money ends up on these mules, and they're hiking it over the Andes. And Chandor clearly gets much more engaged directorially at this point. Mm-hmm. And but all I could think to myself, and this is just from my because I've had so much production experience on low budget films, all I could think to myself was. God damn, this must have been a nightmare of a shoot. Yeah. Like, you just look at the terrain that they're in and rain and mountains and snow and donkeys and windbreakers. And it's like, God, this must have been a fucking nightmare to shoot yeah, this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're in Hawaii for a lot of it, actually. Yeah, most of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, but some of it's in Colombia. Uh, they're supposed to be, I mean, the titular triple frontier would be what? Brazil, Peru, and Uruguay? Argentina? Brazil... Peru, Ecuador, well, Colombia, Ecuador, and Colum- uh, and Brazil, I think. Okay. I know I've been there. There's, there's, there's one point where all three meet. I forget. Okay, and I'm assuming that's where the title comes from, but they never actually refer to it. Nobody ever actually uses the term Triple Frontier in this movie, which I guess I sort of respect. So so they're hiking over the mountains, and things are just getting worse and worse. And then eventually, eventually, this kid, um, you know, presumably the son of one of the guys that Affleck killed, mm-hmm. stalks him, hunts him down, and then gives Affleck one to the forehead. Mm-hmm. Did you see this coming? Did you presume that uh, they were going to pull a fast one here? And I mean, it's kind of, it, there, there's an inevitability about it in retrospect, right? And it makes me wonder if that's the reason that Affleck signed on to this. Yeah, my brother and I were talking like, has, is this the first time Affleck's died on screen? We couldn't remember another one. I should have done my research before we talked, actually. That's but. kind of interesting. I'll have to think about that. Yeah. No, it's a good point. Yeah. Dogma, but that, does that really count? Yeah. I mean, it has to be. I mean, this movie seems to want to be, at some points, kind of like a 
80s schlocky predator style and i wish it would lean into that yeah to me that's what's missing that's kind of what i'm what i was mentioning the Catherine bigelow sort of like lowbrow pulpy Mm -hmm. stuff i really wish this movie would have leaned into the predator of it all yeah like this should be kind of a trashy mctiernan movie and instead chandor's kind of like he's existing in this weird nether region where the movie is kind of taking this seriously to its detriment Mm -hmm. but then also gets trashy at the wrong time it's just a tonally it's a very strange misguided film yeah so i I assumed members of the crew were going to die i thought more members of the crew were going to die sort of like a getting picked off one by one situation but they shoot charlie hunnam pretty early he's the first one to catch a bullet and then they never really mention it again and then he's able to traverse the andes yes exactly and then at one point they they throw garrett headland out of the helicopter and like oh he's gonna go first i mean he's obviously the lowest build might as well kill him off but then he survives it that's what this movie pivots on right like that's what it's really concerned with is the fact that if you take this sort of treasure of the sierra madre thing to its logical conclusion eventually all the money is going to have to be lost. Yeah. That's what happens at the end of the treasure of Sierra Madre. The the gold gets blown away. (laughs) Like the gold returns to uh, where they found it. Right. So they also set, well, they set up the sequel though. Quadruple frontier. Yeah. So they, they, they get, they're losing money. At one point, a mule actually falls off the mountain and explodes in a flurry of money, (laughs) which is a crazy visual. And then, you know, Affleck dies and then they decide they're not going to be able to drag this money all the way down. So because the cartel has basically cut them off from the sea. So they bury, they throw the money into a ravine. They take as much as they can carry. They escape. They finally manage to get past the cartel and onto the boat. And then the little money they have left, they all give to Affleck's widow, right, or his family. Yeah, there's a there's a very silly car chase to the to the ocean where uh, they manage to Oscar Isaac keeps like shooting tires, and then <laughs> the trucks that are pursuing them just explode and pretty unrealistic. But uh, it is, but it's kind of a fun scene. Yeah, I, it's I fun. do think it's like it's where Chandor finally manages to hone in on some sense of style. The, the chase scene through like the tall grass it, 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 I thought it was very cool I thought it was sort of like a fun chase and then and then isn't it Garrett Garrett Hedlund's like in the boat he's like in the speedboat next to them and so you get so Pedro Pascal's like driving the truck on one on the beach and then uh, Garrett Hedlund is traversing through the water parallel yeah just kind of a fun visual and Pedro Pascal keeps yelling at Oscar Isaac he's like what the fuck are you doing kill those guys because at this point Oscar Isaac has had some sort of like crisis of faith right yeah he's like no more no more murder exactly even though these are cartel guys trying to kill us well I guess they're they're like they keep saying they're teenagers yeah they're, they're, they're like youngsters mercenaries. they're being yeah armed yeah armed by the the cartels I guess the cartel have gone into every seaside town that, that these guys could possibly go to and yeah i guess it makes sense that you wouldn't want to kill any more of these guys but that that ship had had sailed quite quite a long time ago the last scene is them deciding that they don't want to keep the money and they basically just go around the table and they all give all the money to affleck's family which is i guess inevitable but sort of unsatisfying at the same time Pretty they could have kept a little bit you know just keep 50 <laughs> grand here or there She's, right. you know, f- she's gonna get away with like five million. That's pretty. That's pretty good. And then uh, Charlie Hunnam gives Oscar Isaac the coordinates to the um, to the ravine, mm-hmm. and yeah, like you said, we set up the the sequel, which will never happen. So that's it. So that's Triple Frontier. And then of course we uh, we smash cut to um, a Metallica song. Uh-huh. That's because that's the kind of movie we're watching here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this movie is not good, but I'm really glad that I watched it. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it because there's there's a lot going on here. But when you watch the film and you realize how mediocre it is, at least this is, was my reaction. It was like, yeah, that's 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 what I presume a Netflix film would look like. That's that's what this business model has now rot i suppose roma is an outlier and i think triple frontier is much more what we well so so triple frontier and bird box you're placing them in the netflix niche now like that is the kind of movie that that netflix is going to focus on that's the algorithm breaker that's the that's the that's the genre they're gonna go for which is like slapdash thriller a little bit schlocky just an easy watch while you're on the couch on a Sunday afternoon. Not good enough. Yes. I guess I guess is what I eventually, which I, you know, I, I'm, that sounds a little reductive and it sounds a little cruel, I guess, mm-hmm. but it's it's not, not good enough. It's not good enough to play with the big boys. And I think that's kind of like this, this middle ground that Netflix finds itself in at the moment. It's interesting that they have not claimed any, at least I haven't read any articles where Netflix is claiming that uh, Triple Frontier is doing big numbers, right? Like, no, I haven't seen that. They, 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 they were falling over themselves to tell us how many people were watching Bird Box. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to be telling us anything about Triple Frontier. Yeah. Is that because it's failing on Netflix? Or is that 
because they're waiting to give us statistics? Or why do you suppose they're being so closed mouthed? Because they certainly hyped it, you know, the trailers and the posters. Like, it's, it's, this was a pretty big release for them. And they seem to not be concerned with telling us anything exciting about the numbers. Yeah, well, I guess that's the benefit of being Netflix. Like, you can just <laughs> choose when to announce ratings and choose when to just keep them to yourselves, right? Because they never said anything about uh, Roma. You know, they never said anything about Buster Scruggs. I mean, this is interesting. So you think there's sort of two buckets at this point for Netflix original films. There's there's this Bird Box, Triple Frontier part, and then there's the appeasing of premier prestige filmmakers, which is Buster Scruggs, Roma, uh, High Flying Bird, which is just like, okay, we're going to give these filmmakers the budget to do what they want, and that will ingrain ourselves with the Hollywood elite. Yeah, High Flying Bird is interesting. Um, it came out about a month ago. We never really got a chance to talk about it. It makes complete sense that Soderbergh would want to get in bed with Netflix, right? Yeah. Like, he's all about kind of bucking trends, trying new things, experimenting with different exhibition models. Like, it was inevitable that he would eventually go over to Netflix. But High Flying Bird is interesting because I think it's it's smack dab in the middle of Soderbergh's canon quality-wise. It's ultimately a pretty small film, all things considered. I think it's a better movie than Triple Frontier. I presume it's probably a better film than Bird Box. It seems like people responded to it positively, but I don't think it would have worked in theaters. No, no one would have seen it in theaters. So this is what Netflix should be doing. It should be helping highbrow established filmmakers to get their kinds of films made that wouldn't work in theaters, right? Yeah, I mean, on, on one hand, I like the idea of these filmmakers getting to do what they want and having creative control and, you know, are, they're, they're able to try new things, like you said. However, the sort of upside of them getting uh, theatrical releases for this kind of thing is that maybe they get into festivals, maybe they get some buzz, maybe they, they're up for awards. You know, when I see High Flying Bird, it just it comes and goes and a very small audience sees it and then it's done. And that's it, right? That's the that's the end of the discussion. Like the sort of narrative of a of a prestige movie uh, before Netflix is that you know it goes to these festivals, people talk about it, maybe there's some buzz, it gets some press, and then there's sort of a, a, a long tail story to how how this movie comes to audiences, right? And so there's this building of of buzz, and a certain subset of the audience sees it, and then maybe there's awards, right? I don't know. I, I kind of feel weird and maybe a little sad about. High Flying Bird, even though I wasn't the biggest fan of the movie, is this like, it's it's come and it's gone, and now it's just in the Netflix pile, right? And and yeah, and, and it's no one's going to talk about it, and it's just going to be forgotten, right? And and that is you know in a bigger, more general sense, the the problem with the uh, the volume of content that Netflix is creating, right? Um, there's nothing special about any one thing because it's just going to come and go and forgotten about within a week or two. The the biggest issue in this ongoing debate for me and this sort of like existential question that I always come back to is without Netflix, do we get High Flying Bird? Without Netflix, do we get Roma? Without Netflix, do we get The Irishman? And is the world a better place because Roma exists? Yes, probably is. It's a, it's a wonderful movie. I'm glad it exists. It probably should have won Best Picture. It's a good thing that Alfonso Cuaron got to make Roma, and it's a good thing that everybody got to see it, and it enriched a lot of people's lives. Do we get Roma without Netflix? And if Netflix is this evil empire, do we still need to concede that they are responsible for important art getting made that would not get made otherwise? That's the big question. I, 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 I don't know. It's also the question of, are gatekeepers good, right? You know, it's sort of what I come back to when I talk about, like, popular music these days, right? Like, the, I, a, lot of, a lot of people talk about the, the, the weakening, the, te- the deterioration of, of the monoculture, right? Like, the, there's not a handful of things that everyone agrees on and we all get to share together. Roma is a, is a pretty interesting thing because I bet he could have made Roma through the without Netflix, but it would have been smaller budget, probably would have wouldn't have been as good or as lush or as amazing as as it turned out to be. It would have maybe been smaller budget and forgotten about, wouldn't have gotten as much hype and fewer people would have seen it. So you know, there's both of those things. It's like not only do these filmmakers get to make these movies that they might not otherwise have been able to make, but more eyeballs are going to be on those things like just naturally being on netflix because the barrier of entry to watching something on netflix as opposed to going to the theater is is so so much smaller you have to take that into account 
as well. So, I mean, it's it's a really hard question because we don't get to experiment the other side of it, right? We, we don't get to see Alfonso Cuaron's fight to make Roma without Netflix, the, the ease of Netflix being there. In some regard, it's sort of an unanswerable question and maybe makes me want to focus on sort of the negatives of Netflix instead of the positives. David Sims, uh, who writes for The Atlantic, wrote an interesting article the other day where he was talking about this whole Spielberg controversy, which we can get into now. He made the, the good point that like when Netflix keeps defending itself, saying, you know, we want these films to be available to everyone. We want to make sure that even people who aren't in a city with a theater that's showing Roma can get access to this stuff. And he made the good point that like, okay, maybe there's a smaller barrier to entry or whatever, but you still need to have a good internet connection and the money to be able to subscribe to Netflix every month, right? Yeah. So it's not it's 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 not that egalitarian. You know, it's not so yeah. you know, uh virtuous on Netflix's part. We want to make these movies available to everyone. No, you still have a subscription model and you still need to be in, you know, you need to be in a place where you have a pretty decent internet connection. So yes, maybe somebody who's living in the Midwest who isn't near a theater that Netflix has four-walled to be able to show Roma mm-hmm. may only be able to watch it on their computer. But it's not like Netflix is showing up to their house and and you know, giving them a private screening of it. Yeah, but if you're free. if you're not if you don't have an internet connection, if you're not if you can't afford Netflix, you weren't going to be able to afford to go to the theater anyway, right? I yeah, mean, exactly. It, it, it's a hard one. Like, so I was looking up some stats. Um, Netflix again, this is self-reported, so take it with a grain of salt. But <laughs> yes. something Netflix says users watch about seventy-one minutes per day of streaming for net uh, on Netflix. Right? Seems reasonable enough to me, I guess. You know, people binge a lot, and they you know just put on The Office for the ninth time. Regardless, that means it's about thirty-six cents per hour of streaming, which is cheap you know that's good value for taking in content right and uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and far surpasses your eight dollars per hour of going to a theater and, and and seeing movies so the value is there however you know when it comes to netflix creating these big budget movies and this is why i i, I was talking about the well if netflix could make 500 million dollars why wouldn't they release it is that it's not like the the film production costs are going down at the same rate right like the film production costs are pretty static if you're gonna make good movies the bang for their buck you know when it comes to netflix financing a movie like this like it's it doesn't seem to make financial sense unless you're looking at this weird just retaining users and gaining new users thing that i'm too dumb to really (laughs) grasp right sure so it's just a it's a hard math problem to to try and solve and becomes even more difficult when you take into account the subjectivity of the, the the quality of the content being produced why do you suppose they decided to release triple frontier in a few theaters do you think it was just chandor putting his foot down at this point he's made you know three excellent films and he has the clout to be able to say look guys i need you to i need you to release this in a dozen theaters around the country just for a week uh, you owe me this much because it's not gonna it's gonna lose money and I mean this is gonna lose money in theaters for sure yeah it's not it's not gonna make money it's not gonna win awards uh, you know come next winter either I mean maybe they thought some visual effects or editing or something but absolutely not so I've, I've got no idea why they did that maybe they just wanted to be able to say it was a theatrically released film or they wanted to put it in in their list of Netflix movies that were released in theaters just as a sort of feather in their cap but I don't know it, it, it's kind of perplexing in the in a lot of ways so let's talk about the quality right like do you think netflix just absolutely does not give a shit about critics reviews or 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 anything of that nature do you think they want do you think they meddled at all to try to make this movie better like you know film studios are want to do what's perplexing is that they don't seem to care that much about critics but they do seem to be oddly obsessed with awards yeah. Right. And I guess that's what they think is going to finally prove their legitimacy is that what they really should be doing is just, you know, counting their money and doing their own thing and changing the game. Or like they should be off in their corner, kind of like ruling the world. But they th- they clearly think that like the last nail in the coffin or like the last thing they have left to prove is that they can win a Best Picture Oscar, which they almost did last year. Yeah. 
and they might this year with the, the Irishman. We'll see. It, it is a strange thing where like they seem to be very hands-off with these filmmakers. That's why a lot of filmmakers like to go to work for them because allegedly they really don't meddle too much. I mean, like you said, there are algorithms that lead to a lot of these decision, decisions being made, especially on the original television content side, yeah. of which there is tons. But it seems like they're relatively hands-off when it comes to these prestige, you know, more well-known filmmakers and their decisions. So I'm going to go ahead and lay all the blame for Triple Frontier at J.C. Chandor and Mark <laughs> Bowles' feet and not really blame Netflix for the relative mediocrity of it. Yeah. It, it is strange to me that they still are very, very consumed with going to war with Cannes and with Spielberg now in terms of these Academy rules and mandates that may or may not disqualify them for awards in the future. So Spielberg last month, right after the Oscars, got very, I mean, he's, he's been very vocal about this stuff for a while, but it's be really become front page news now that he is going to the Academy next month. And I believe he's the head of the, mm-hmm. he's like the chair of the director's branch, right? Of the Academy. Yeah. And he's going to lobby the Academy to extend the qualifying uh, time from one week to four weeks, I believe. Okay. In your opinion, is this just someone on the Titanic tries, trying to bail Mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to bail water off of a sinking ship. Has has this sinking ship sailed at the risk of mixing my metaphors? Yeah, again, that's a loaded question. <laughs> yes. I so Spielberg's argument. I mean, like, I get what he's where he's coming from. Again, like, I, I'm not sure I care that much about the awards rules, right? I'm not sure that matters. But when it comes to the future of filmmaking and theatrical re- releases and all that stuff, I'm not very worried about they're not being movie theaters anymore, you know? Just because when you have a hit movie, the financial upside is so much greater, you know, to make people go to theaters and pay for pay the box office ticket and all that than having people who are already paying for your streaming service be being able to see it on their on their couch, right? You know, Disney's not you know, Disney's gonna have Disney Plus and there's there's no amount of people who are streaming it, who are paying for the subscription service, that's going to, you know, equal the the revenue they're gonna get from it making a billion dollars worldwide, right? So like I, I, I don't I don't see the, the filmmaking business being impacted all that much by this Netflix thing. Couldn't you see whether maybe you know maybe movie theaters aren't necessarily gonna go away completely in our lifetime, but couldn't you see a reality within the next twenty years, let's say, where you go to the movie theater, and it is just Star Wars, Marvel, and Pixar films. I mean, isn't that feasible? I mean, th- this year Disney is going to have. And they already had Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. which is just, it just I think is going to pass eight hundred million this week. Yeah, Dumbo's coming out next week and is going to crush and will probably make a billion dollars. That's what Alice in Wonderland did, right? Mm-hmm. Then they're going to do um, uh, Endgame, of course, which will make two billion dollars. Then they're going to do The Lion King, which I think comes out in May or June mm-hmm. and will do a billion dollars. Then they're going to do Spider-Man. you know Spider Man, and then they're going to have uh, Aladdin, yeah. Aladdin in June, right, which will crush. And then they're going to end the year with um, Star Wars. Yeah. And they'll probably, they're going to do record numbers this year. And then, of course, they're going to open the new Star Wars land at Disneyland Mm -hmm. and Disney World. Disney is probably going to have the greatest fiscal year a company has ever had. Yeah. Potentially. And couldn't you see a situation where pretty much every movie in the theater is just a big tentpole franchise Disney film or a remake of a Disney film? Yeah. Your Green Books and your Romas and your Triple Frontiers and even your Bohemian Rhapsodies are just on Netflix because that's that's where we go to, to see quote-unquote adult films. Again, right? I, to see non-franchise films. I, I, I don't see that because, you know, it was... Is Bohemian Rhapsody Universal? I believe so. That sounds right. I mean, Universal made a bunch of money on Bohemian Rhapsody because people were willing to go see it in the theater, right? You know, take uh, Jordan Peele's Us, which is going to come out. The money that that would make streaming pales in comp- comparison to what it's going to make in the theater. It's probably going to make, what, $120 million or something, I bet? Maybe. It's not, apparently, it's it's much weirder than uh, than Get Out. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to make money, and it's going to make money because it was released in theaters, right? Like, so watching a movie in a theater is a better film going experience than watching at home in a vacuum, right? Obviously, there are other things at play, you know, cost, convenience, just dealing with other people. Some people don't like that. However, like the, the weird thing is that I've seen, and this might be just anecdotal to Seattle, but Netflix, the whole streaming culture has improved the film going experience. Theaters have been forced to upgrade, uh, whether it's just more comfortable chairs whether it's better concessions, cheaper concessions, 
um, adding beer and wine to the experience. Even multiplexes are doing this. Yep. Um, showing having niche theaters that are showing independent films. I just I just see that continuing. And and a lot of people's complaints and why Netflix was able to rise, I think, is because the film going experience had petered off to a point where it was uncomfortable seats and shitty multiplexes on bad screens, right? But that's changing for the better. So I think I do think Netflix, and I just keep coming back to the idea that like. No matter what, it's just going to be more financially feasible to make $50 million on a $15 million budget than spending $15 million budget on a movie that who knows how many people are going to stream and watch. No no matter how many people stream and watch that, you're still only recouping the subscription fees, right? Maybe it's going to impact the amount of uh, the volume of films that are greenlit by Hollywood because uh, the streaming companies are taking a share, simply a big share of the viewing times. I don't foresee a world where it's only the big budget things going in the theaters because there's still money to be made from putting good films out there. Yeah, it's, I mean, you're much more optimistic about this than I am. Maybe I'm just, uh, I've just been reading so many op-ed pieces. Maybe I'm starting to get a little bit fatalistic about all this stuff. It's just, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, Annapurna had one of their worst years ever last year. Um, there was an article in Variety last week talking about how much money they lost on If Beale Street Could Talk and Vice. Yeah. Which, um, you know, both were awards contenders and both were pretty much critically beloved or at least respected Mm -hmm. Uh, but those movies didn't make money they lost money for Megan Ellison and there will come up there will be a breaking point where Megan Ellison can't just prop up all of these filmmakers with her piggy bank she and her shareholders are going to have to step back and take a look at at this you know at the economics of it all yeah maybe it won't be as feasible to make if Beale Street could talk I mean Moonlight was made for what a million and a half or something and ended up going on to be a surprise hit and won best picture and made money for 824 but if Beale Street could talk is going to lose money for Annapurna and it's not like Barry Jenkins won't be able to get another movie financed but they will crunch the numbers and things will change as a result of those of that number crunching yeah so I do fear for those those kinds of films and the feasibility of releasing those film those kinds of films in theaters for an extended run mm-hmm. as opposed to a ceremonial one week or even four week award qualifying yeah i just i just see that kind of stuff changing it, it might be slow but i think there is going to be a shift and i think there is going to be a, a bit of a change yeah i guess i guess what you're saying is that it's not really an either or netflix or theatrical run thing um, it's it's an either or in terms of do we finance this film or does this film not get made right so I, I guess that is the big danger here because you know Vice isn't going to make Annapurna more money if it's just on Netflix I mean I, I guess if Netflix decides to buy Vice for fifty million fifty million dollars that'd be funny I mean Netflix is going to keep spending more and more money for the next few years. But at some point, they're going to pump the brakes because their whole goal is to have this unassailable catalog of film and television that they can just sit on and then reap the you know subscription revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because right now they're not making money. You know, they I, I think they have 130 million worldwide subscribers. That's about a billion dollars a month, so 12 billion dollars in revenue. And I think they spent you know 14 billion dollars in production costs last year they're gonna spend 18 billion in 2019 (laughs) and 20 billion in 2020 oh those numbers are huge just on original programming uh but again like spending 50 million on triple frontier isn't it's not like a one-to-one value prop like they're not going to quote-unquote make 50 million dollars from Triple Frontier. They're not going to make anything besides the people who are continuing to subscribe because, in theory, they're ma- they're putting out original programming like Triple Frontier. So mm-hmm. it, at some point, Netflix is going to say, okay, you can't just come up, come to us with a script and we'll greenlight it immediately because we want content. Like, that's going to stop at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the, uh, the Amazon model, right? Like, Amazon was a lost leader of a company for over a decade, and now they're, you know, the biggest company in the world. Well, so. yeah, but Am- yeah, it's, Amazon a, is a weird one because they got saved. They almost went bankrupt like seven years ago. And, okay. and the only reason they were able to sustain and still, I think, their biggest revenue gainer is, is AWS, is the cloud. So something okay. totally unrelated to their, like, you know, core business 
is the only thing that saved them and allowed them to sort of stem the tide before they became totally profitable. So yeah. it's sort of a different thing. And, and you know, I, I guess it's similar to, to Netflix in that like their theatrical releases are not going to make money, but it's just the people who continue to auto-renew their $12 a month subscriptions. <laughs> it is funny. For the first time in probably 15 years, I did shut my subscription off last month when I was trying to tighten my belt a little bit. Um, but the Oscars rolled around and there was these documentaries that I needed to knock off my list and they were only available on Netflix. I couldn't find them anywhere else and I had to bite the bullet and resubscribe or reopen my subscription. And yeah, it is interesting just how much of my life revolves around the things that I need to get access to on Netflix. And it's not necessarily Triple Frontiers or Bird Boxes or Stranger Things or anything like that, but there just there is certain content that I just need to kind of have at my fingertips and it's worth that whatever the hell it is, you know, the the fact that I don't even know what the number is mm-hmm. speaks to how ubiquitous yeah. the um, that subscription is. I'll never forget sitting in my friend uh, Bo Foster's dorm room in McCarthy at uh, LMU back in 2003. And he had this little red envelope sitting on his desk. And uh, I'll never forget what film it was. It was Gaspar Noe's Irreversible. <laughs> and he was talking about how, how traumatized he was by this film. But all I wanted to talk about was like, wait, well, how does this work? You, you, they send it to you, but then how long does it take to? And then you just send it back, and they send you another one. It just, I was like, it blew my mind. Yeah. Like, this is this is great. I mean, we're smack dab right in the middle of my you know DVD obsession in my late teens and early twenties. And then five or six years later, when they announced they're going to start streaming stuff, like this is this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Now we don't even need to we don't even need to send these things back. Now we can just go get you know access the Big Lebowski right now. Yeah. And then somewhere along the line, they're gonna you know they're getting into bed with David Fincher and they're gonna start creating shows and like. Really? You guys are going to give access to guys like David Fincher? Like, this is fantastic. I love this. And I feel like I've been the proverbial frog in the pot of boiling water, right? Mm -hmm. And I've just been in this pot for so long, and they've just been just turning it up and turning it up and turning it up incrementally to the point where I feel like I've been boiled by this company and haven't even realized it. Yeah. And I was even looking back through a lot of our old uh, archived podcasts from three years ago, four or five years ago, six years ago. And there's a lot of glowing, like there's podcasts that are just dedicated to us stroking Netflix and talking about how much we love the business model and how impressed we are by all this. And I feel like they really have done an incredible job of kind of bamboozling us through all of this, right? Yeah. I mean, they've really, I mean, I, I don't want to make them the evil empire necessarily. And at the end of the day, if High Flying Bird and Roma exist because of these guys, then I do think that the world is a better place as a result. Well, speaking of something that's like unequivocally good that Netflix has done, the amount of documentaries we have access to, the amount Absolutely. of the documentary filmmakers that are allowed to you know make their movies and, and, and TV series, like that's that's just a straight up good thing. you know and, yeah. and the fact that more people are watching documentaries as a result, that's great. I mean they've given access I mean for content creators, not necessarily the, the, the business at large or, or the production companies at large. For content creators, like Netflix has been an unambiguously great thing. It's given access to a lot of voices that didn't have it before. That was Ava DuVernay's point, right? Yeah. When she started bucking bucking back against Spielberg's contentions. Yeah, and I can't I can't disagree with that. But just to kind of wrap this up, I will say that I I know I'm a little bit old fashioned about a lot of this stuff, but I I side with Spielberg on this particular argument. I am all for increasing that theatrical window, and I get why Can takes issue with Netflix, and I do think it's important to push back a little bit on this stuff. If if the if, if awards, if the Academy Awards are the one thing that old school filmmakers and enthusiasts like Spielberg, if it's the last vestige, you know, if it's the last weapon they have to combat this, then I guess they need to wield it because yeah. Netflix has made it clear that they want a they want an invitation to this party. Mm-hmm. So if it means that we need to increase the theatrical window in order to declare these as movies and not made for television content, mm-hmm. then uh, then yeah, then maybe this is a good thing. And maybe he'll be able to push this thing through. And, you know, filmmakers like Christopher Nolan and Quentin Tarantino, you know, these old school guys who like to shoot on film and mythologize the theatrical experience, mm-hmm. uh, if they keep rabble, you know, if they keep defending this exhibition model, if they keep defending this format, at the end of the day, I, I, I side with them. I know it sounds old fashioned. Yeah. I know it sounds like the opposite of progressive. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just a lot of us fuddy duds kind of like holding on to this, but it's important to us, you know? I bet we're, we're moving towards a point, and this might ultimately be okay, 
movies as we know them are just split into two categories. They're the streaming movies and they're theatrical movies. And what I mean by that is maybe more movies that are being produced now are going to move to the streaming part, but the population at large will be conditioned to understand that like, oh, if this movie is a theater theater movie, then it was deemed worthy of going to the theater for. We'll know that like, oh, this movie's going to be in wide release and not streaming for, for months on end. Ho- holy shit, this is probably worthy of the effort it's going to take to go out to the theater. Probably means fewer theatrical releases, and that's, you know, an inevitability. Hopefully it doesn't mean it's only the big tentpole, well-known IP stuff that you were talking about with Disney. If, if we get to the point where, you know, random person in the Midwest or whatever is like, oh, this movie's not streaming? Holy shit. Even if I don't know the property, even if it's not a Marvel movie, I'll say, okay, this is probably worthy of my attention. So your optimism basically suggests that quality of the movies in theaters will increase yeah. as a result of this conundrum. Yeah. They only have, just like the, the quality of the theaters themselves have been forced to uh, get better, Hollywood's just not going to be able to phone it anymore with, uh, with bad movies. I was attending the... A conference, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, of which I'm a member. Their conference, their 60th anniversary conference, was in Seattle this last weekend, which is where I'm living at the moment. And I went and spent the weekend there, and it was really fun and really eye-opening. And there was a lot of panels dedicated to this exact subject, as you would expect. Uh, I'd say the two biggest subjects at this particular conference were films responding to the Me Too movement and uh, the you know the Netflix of it all. Those are probably the two biggest subjects being covered by a lot of these panels. And I went and saw one, and this woman from uh, Georgetown gave a really interesting, delivered a really interesting paper about Nighthawk and Alamo and Cinemark and you know the the move towards introducing um, alcohol into the theatrical experience. She made an interesting point by saying that a lot of these theater chains now think of themselves as restaurants Mm -hmm. that just happen to show movies, right? I mean, the revenue that they can generate from, I mean, concessions has always been the thing for movie theaters. That's where like 70% of their revenue comes from. So obviously that's multiplied now by the fact that they can serve much more expensive, you know, beer and wine. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they think of themselves now as restaurants that just happen to be showing movies in the background, I think speaks to the fact that people now go to these theaters wanting to have date night or have this experience, have some drinks, enjoy each other's company. They don't really care what the movie is. Yeah. For better or for worse, if this is what it's going to take to keep these things alive, so be it. I don't think that the movie has nearly as much to do with it for most viewers. You know, like I don't think it's so much, it's not necessarily about caring about Dumbo or Captain Marvel as it is just something to do on a Friday night and now we can involve food and drinks into it all the better, right? Part of me thinks that people who aren't, you know, extreme avid moviegoers like like we are or I presume the people listening to this podcast is that I think that's the way it's always been. You know, going to the, let's go to the multiplex and we'll figure out what we're seeing when we get there. Like going to the movies as opposed to going to one particular movie that you really want to see. So, you know, the glass half full part of me thinks that you know it's like okay let's we can enjoy the night out like we would normally but we also get to see a movie right like that we also get to see the movie that we maybe want to see and you know we have our cake and eat it too so i uh, i don't know this it's complex thing i i'm interested to see where it all ends up and it's uh it's been very weird living living through it certainly and you know and we're also living in the time of the 24-hour news cycle and everybody's got a podcast and so there's just a lot more there's just a lot more noise about all this you know yeah. there's rabble rousing we're at, we're adding our voices to the cacophony of it right now mm-hmm. and uh just everybody's got an opinion and it's just it's news and it's something people want to talk about and there's just there's you know the times they are a changing man mm-hmm. and uh something that this woman from georgetown mentioned was that these theater chains know that certain things pair better with alcohol and certain things sell more booze. So as a result, you know, more there's more comedies or action films tend to sell more alcohol than foreign films, for example, right? Sure. So what worries me a little bit is that we're going to see much less programming of some of the nichier foreign stuff, which I guess is not necessarily that strange. That's that's the way it's sort of always been. I'm just worried about it potentially getting worse yeah. because of these theaters and their bottom line. Just to wrap this up, put your conspiracy theory cap on for a second. Deal. How much of this controversy do you think contributed to Green Book winning Best Picture? Is this Was this so much a vote for Green Book or was this a vote against Netflix? Well, I think there are two camps. I think there is the, 
and we saw this from some anonymous uh, from some anonymous quotes out there around awards time, which is a there's the people who said fuck you for telling me I shouldn't like Green Book, you know, like fuck you for saying that th- this is a this is a racially insensitive or problematic movie or whatever. So I think there's a lot of old coots who felt that way but then i think there's the other camp which is exactly what you're saying that i do not want to vote for a netflix movie i do not like where this is going and i think uh we should try to nip this in the bud as soon as possible because we don't we don't want netflix with their unlimited checkbook being able to finance these movies and have them dominate award shows like they've dominated the emmy i mean i think there's something to it i don't know why it didn't occur to me at the time but in the days after the Oscars, when people were like, Spielberg was an executive producer on Green Book. And, you know, like all these uh. these kinds of things that started coming out. Like, yeah, all right. There's something to this. I mean, they keep talking about introducing new voices, younger Academy members, more minority Academy members making this thing more diverse. But they, at, the end of, at the end of the day, it is still majority, you know, white guys in their 60s. Yeah. So there's, there's something to that at the risk of being too conspiracy theory minded about it. I do find it interesting that we now basically have Spielberg approaching this thing from without, you know, shouting it, standing on the sidewalk outside of Netflix, shouting at the top of his lungs. And then you also have his buddy Scorsese kind of infiltrating from within, right? Yeah. So now Scorsese's inside the belly of the beast making his $200 million gangster epic. <laughs> and presumably he's going to force these guys to roll this thing out in the biggest theatrical release they've ever done. Yeah. And maybe that'll be a game changer and maybe that will establish a new precedent. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that Scorsese necessarily has nefarious ulterior motives, but clearly he's interested in playing this game or exploring this game with these guys. And uh, maybe that's for the best. Maybe that's a more sophisticated and progressive way of, of fighting this battle a little bit by actually keeping your friends close and your enemies closer as it were (laughs) well it'll be interesting i look forward to seeing it and if triple frontier is any uh indication of netflix film quality going forward then the oscars don't really have a lot to worry about (laughs) don't worry about it (laughs) all right triple frontier not a great movie but uh i sure enjoyed talking about it absolutely well until next time this has been we like movies say goodbye matt goodbye matt